It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for, well, you guys didn't actually invite me, your pastor did, but thanks for opening your hearts. It's great to be with you this morning. So that was just kind of a reflection of what, we've done, what we have done this year as Metanoia. Uh, you saw we're feeding over 22,000 meals a week right now through our feeding centers. We have our widow's home. We have various things going on. But also we branched out and we're working in the Dominican Republic as well now. So we have a national director established in the Dominican Republic. And this past July, I guess it was, uh, our team in Dominican Republic hosted their first U.S. team coming down to Dominican to work. And it was actually my wife and I led a team from our home church now where we're living in Chesapeake down to work. So it's a very cool experience to be working with our staff in DR. So we're excited. We're excited what God's doing in Nicaragua, in the Dominican, but we're also excited what God's doing here in the United States. We were missionaries in Nicaragua for 15 years before we felt God call us back to the States. I was traveling when I came back, still running Metanoia, but traveling as an evangelist. And two years ago, we uh, accepted a position to become pastors in Chesapeake, Virginia. So it's a whole new dynamic, pastoring a church, traveling as an evangelist, going back and forth to Nicaragua. My wife's actually in Nicaragua right now as I speak, so it's kind of cool. My kids are home without supervision, so we'll see how that goes. I do FaceTime them to make sure the house is still there, but we are renting, so that's even better because if it's not, they have homeowners assurance. You guys, you just take the hand of your neighbor one more time. We're going to pray. I know we've been praying a lot this morning, which is a good thing. We're going to pray for those on the right and left of us this morning. Father, we thank you for each person that's here we thank you for the opportunity to pray for those on the right and left of us, those that we're making physical contact with right now. Lord, we ask that you minister to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you reveal yourself to them. Lord, that you speak to their hearts, you speak to their minds. Lord, you bring peace to them, you bring comfort to them, that they'll find strength in you. Lord, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situation they might be going through, they'll find their strength in you. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body of Christ to glorify you, to lift up the name that is above every other name. And Lord, we thank you for the destiny that you have and the hearts of the people we're praying for today. Release that destiny in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, amen. amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about Philippians. Your pastor said you guys are on a series. We actually just did a series on Philippians also. So when he said, that, uh, hey, we're doing Philippians, I'm like, yes, I have some sermons in the can for this. And he goes, yeah, you can do chapter three. And I'm like, I just spoke on chapter three. Then he writes me back and says, actually, you're going to do chapter four. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So no, it's all good. So we have a fresh message today on chapter four. I'm going to continue on with what your staff has been teaching on, what your staff has been preaching on. And there's so much good out of chapter 4 and chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. There's so much good information we can get from Paul and his writings. We're going to focus on a particular passage of Scripture out of Philippians today, Philippians chapter 4. So I don't know if you have it on the screen, on your Bible, on your app, on your iPad. I'm not sure how most people come to church anymore, but most people have the phone. Does anybody actually bring a Bible to church? The saints are in the house today. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, and as you guys are probably familiar with this passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, reading from the Neely inspired version, the NIV this morning. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting because if you look at society and you look at research, they say that we are the most connected society, the most connected generation ever in the history of the world. I just said that my wife's in Nicaragua. I pick up my phone, I FaceTime her, I have a conversation with her. At night, I talk to my children. I'm like, why are you up at one o'clock in the morning on a school night? Oh, we're just watching a movie. Reality, that's not a joke. But I can talk to them on FaceTime. We're connected. How many of you get bills sent to your email? How many don't want to receive those things, but you get them anyway? I mean, everything's connected. We're continually connected. We want to talk to somebody, see somebody. We're connected. But even with the connection, all the things we have in advancement, our phones, we can pick it up and read the Bible. We don't have to have the Bible app or our, our actual Bible with us. We have it on app. We have all these things, and we're so connected, but we're so distant. And one of the things that we've discovered in society, you guys probably all know this, is as much as we're connected, this is the most depressed generation of people there are. There's more emotional problems than we've ever had in society. There's more suicides than we've ever had in society. There's so much disconnection, even though if you look at, we're literally connected, we are so disconnected. And we're pastoring a church, and one of the things we do is we have connection cards. So every Sunday, our two congregations, everybody fills out a connection card. On, on Tuesday for our staff meeting, we get together and pray over the connection cards. And almost, I would guarantee you, the number one thing that people say, Pastor, please, please pray. I need peace in my life. Please pray. We're going through this situation. We need God's peace. And we believe what God says. God has not given us spirit of fear, but God's given us power, allowing us sound mind. We believe that we can have peace. We believe it as Christians. We know what the word of God says. But unfortunately, even as Christians, so many of us really do not experience God's peace. And this is what we see Paul talking about in this passage of scripture. And I'm not going to go into details of the history because I'm sure you guys dove into it and have been discussing that. But just remember when Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, he's writing from Rome in a prison. You guys are familiar with that. You've already studied it. So think about that conversation that he's having as he's writing this letter from a prison, sending this. And what does he say here? May the peace of God transcend all understanding. And it's interesting if we go through this and we see that his focus isn't about his circumstances. His focus isn't about his situation. This is Paul who's been shipwrecked. This is Paul who's been left at sea for a day and a half floating around. This is Paul that's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been bitten by snakes. All this stuff has happened to Paul. He's been tortured, thrown into jail numerous times. And this is Paul saying, man, rejoice, man. You can have peace. It's all good. And here we get fretful and we get down and we get depressed and we don't have peace because we see our bills and we get our paycheck and we're like, man, we're not going to be able to pay this bill this month. We're going to have to just pay a little bit towards it. I've been there myself. We're going through it right now with my son going into the hospital for possible appendicitis, but it's food poisoning. Guess what? ER in the States is absolutely ridiculous. $4,000, $5,000 later for three hours in the hospital. I got MediShare, man, $10,000 deductible. That's got to come out of my pocket. So we just make little payments at a time. So we could all sit here and talk about different things that are robbing us of our peace, but I guarantee you none of us have been flogged, have been beaten, have been shipwrecked, have been bitten by snakes, have been in prison three or four, well, some of us might have been there before, <laughs> they're in prison three or four times. And here's Paul writing this. 
And he's writing about peace. He's writing about thanksgiving. He's writing about rejoicing, even though he's sitting in a jail cell. And it reminds me a lot of somebody in the Old Testament named David. David, King Saul was going to kill David. He tried several times. If you know the passage of Scripture, you know the story. Throws javelins at him. He escapes. He finally says, you know, enough is enough. I need to get out of here. And he escapes. And what he does is he runs from King Saul and the Israelite army, and he goes to Achish, a king of Gad in the Philistine territory, to escape. So he goes to his arch enemy's territory, the Philistines. And the king's like, oh, this is cool. You know, this is David. He's running from Saul. He's turned his back on Saul. But the king's warriors, the king's mighty men say, wait a minute. This is the guy that killed Goliath. This is the guy that they sing songs about, and you're allowing him in your presence. And so all of a sudden, fear begins to set in David's heart. So he begins to act crazy. If you remember the passage, he lets saliva run down his beard. He acts insane. He escapes and goes to the cave of Adullam. And so I want you to picture in your mind for a moment, this is kind of his own prison, like Paul's writing from prison. David's writing from this cave, which is like a prison because he's the Israelites on one side wanting to kill him. And now he has the Philistines on the other side wanting to kill him. So he's fearful for his life. He even talks about it. And I want you to consider this. He says in Psalm 34, verses 3 and 4, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. So David's fearful. He's running. He's scared. He's in this cave. And what does he say? You know what? I'm going to turn my attention off of myself and my circumstances and my situations, and I'm going to magnify God. Depending on the version we read, it says either magnify or glorify. So he takes his attention off of the fact that Israelites want to kill him, the Philistines want to kill him, that he's hiding out in a cave. He turns his attention towards God and says, you know what? Magnify the Lord with me. I sought the Lord, and he delivered me from all my fears. And it's exactly the same thing we see here with Paul. Paul's sitting in prison. He's saying, you know what? It doesn't matter my circumstances. Things look bad. Things look very bad. I'm probably going to die from where I am. However, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to praise God because that's what we're supposed to do. What happens if we begin to turn our eyes towards God instead of our circumstances? You see, when we magnify God, it minimizes our fears. When we magnify God, it minimizes our circumstances. When we magnify God, it minimizes the giants that we're up against because we're no longer considering ourselves and the things that we're opposing, but we're turning our eyes on God and saying, you know what, God, you're bigger than all these things. You can give strength. You can give wisdom. You can help me overcome. So we got to completely change our mindset. If we change our mindset, we change our thinking. It changes our attitude. I like this saying that says this. Who or what we're devoted to determines our direction in life. Who or what we're devoted to determines our direction in life. So many times we don't have peace. We have fear. We have doubt. We have all these things because that's what we're devoted to. We're going to continually dwell on those things. We're going to continually think upon those things. And because we think about those things, it keeps us down. It keeps us depressed. It robs us of our peace. But if we continue to devote ourselves to studying the Word of God, we devote ourselves to magnifying God, we devote ourselves to rejoicing, our, 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 our heart and our eyes and our minds are not on the things that are in front of us, the circumstances, but they're on God. And those things will begin to determine, because we're devoted to those things, that will determine the direction we go. But if we're continually looking at the lack, we're continually looking through the eyes of not having faith, it's those things that will begin to direct our lives. Who or what we're devoted to is going to determine where we go. 
So considering that, considering our own lives, and we're talking about the peace of God this morning, but considering our own lives, what are we devoted to? I mean, when we really begin to think about it, what are we devoted to? Because we can see from the outcome of our lives or the direction we're going what we're devoted to. We say we're devoted to God. We say we're devoted to his word. We say we're devoted to studying, to, to prayer, these different things. But when we look at our lives and what's manifested in our lives, does it really show we're devoted to those things? It's awfully quiet. As our pastor says, it's awfully quiet in his Baptist church this morning. Are we devoted to God, his promises, and his purpose? Because if we are, we're going to read this passage of scripture, and we're going to study this this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, and we're going to see how we can have peace in our lives. I know that Andy Stanley says you're not supposed to preach three points. You're only supposed to preach one point, but I'm going to preach three points this morning. Is that okay, Pastor? I want us to consider this, point number one. We want peace in our lives. We need to learn to rejoice. Says Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Anytime someone like Paul with that spiritual authority says something two times, it's probably worth recognizing. Paul's basically saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Man, that was so good. That's so important. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Now, I know none of you probably did this as a child, but my dad would say, don't touch the stove. Eric, don't touch the stove. Two times, very important. Guess who touched the stove? I'm sure none of you did that. I remember getting the ice pack out of the truck, back of the truck. I think it was in the Ford, green Ford. He had a little first aid kit. He ran out to the car, got the ice pack. You snap, remember those things? But you can look at our lives. You remember so many times that people would tell us things two times because there's an importance to it. Well, here the Apostle Paul expresses this two times. There's something significant about the fact we need to rejoice. He just doesn't say, hey, rejoice, but it's so important. He says, hey, you got to think about this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again because it's really important. Rejoice. What would happen in our lives if we became people that rejoice? And you're probably looking at me saying, well, rejoice. I mean, what's that? That's a Christianese jargon. You know, it's like Christianese. You understand that if you grew up in the church, but if you're outside the church, what does rejoice even mean? I mean, it's kind of an uncommon word that we use. But if we can begin to study the word rejoice and really get into the root of the word, what its original meaning was, it's this. We would see that it meant to own, possess, or to enjoy the possession of something. I want to repeat that. Meant to own, possess, and this is the key for us, to enjoy the possession of something. If we come to modern dictionaries, the way of thinking, it says it's great delight, it's joy, it's pleasure in something. But I want us to consider to take possession of something. We're rejoicing because we've taken possession of something. That's what the rejoicing stems from. That's why we do it. We have possession of something. And not taking this completely out of context, I want us to jump, jump back to the Old Testament. The Israelites lose the Ark of the Covenant. This is the actual representation of the presence of God. They lose it for some time. So David and his warriors go and they bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Literally the presence of God. They're bringing it back into Jerusalem. And if you guys are familiar with the passage of Scripture, we know what David does. He's so excited because he has now taken possession of something that he begins to rip off his clothes, strips down to his linen ephod, and he begins to dance and sing and shout like a madman because he's taken possession of the presence of God and he's ushering it back into Jerusalem. The presence of God was lost. It's coming back. He's taken possession of something, so he is rejoicing. And you see where I'm going with this. 
He's taking possession of the Holy Spirit. Let's flip it. Okay, we don't take possession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes possession of us. So we have possession of something in our lives that should give us a reason to rejoice. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on the situations we're going on. It's fact that the Holy Spirit has taken possession of us. That we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we've been bought by a price. Somebody's taken possession of us. So what do we do? We rejoice. So when we're sitting in a jail cell, we're sitting in this circumstantial situation, we're looking at it, and it looks terrible, it looks bleak. It doesn't matter the circumstances, situation, because our relationship with Jesus Christ has not changed. The fact that the Holy Spirit's still living us and working us has not changed, so that should give us the reason to rejoice. And if we're rejoicing the Word of God, what does it say? The peace of God which transcends all understanding will be upon you. But how many of us can flip our minds and flip that to begin to rejoice regardless of the circumstance and situation because most of our rejoicing, most of our feelings comes from how we feel at that present moment. It's not based on the truth that we find in the Word of God. I mean, if you think about our lives, most of our happiness comes from situational circumstance. Man, that was the best lot they ever. I feel so good this morning. So what, you feel bad if it's a bad lot there? That changes how you feel and look at life just because you had a bad latte this morning. But for most of us, it is. Okay, maybe you like espresso. You don't like latte, okay? But isn't that how we respond? We get a bill that was a little higher than we thought it was going to be, and we're all irritated, bent out of shape, and blame God and say, God, why could you do this to me? You know, I can't believe it. I thought I was going to pay $100, and I got to pay $200, and we go on and on and on about how unjust life is. Well, guess what? There are times that things happen to us that are unfair and unjust. But if we are devoted to God and devoted to his word and the truth found in his word, that's going to determine the direction of life we go. That's going to order our steps. So why we're rejoicing shouldn't be dictated on our circumstances and situations. It should come from within us. It should come from within us. It's something we choose to do. Just like we got up this morning and decided what we're going to wear, we choose to, to rejoice. We choose to put on joy. It's a voluntary act that we have to begin to do, even when we don't feel like it. Do you really think that Paul felt like rejoicing as he's in prison? He's probably thinking, man, here we go again. I was going to go to Rome, but this isn't what I had in mind. And what would happen if we begin to rejoice, literally begin to rejoice? And I'm not saying we need to be like David, running around, taking off our clothes with our linen ephod and dancing around in our boxers. If that's what your pastor encourages you to do, I'm not going to argue. <laughs> Every anointing's different in every house. I mean, that's cool. But I mean, seriously, what would happen if we would choose to rejoice? What would happen if we get cut off of the red light instead of flipping the, our, the person, the international peace sign with the one finger, if we just decided to rejoice instead, say, thank you, Lord, at least I have a car that I'm driving. I had a car to be able to cut off. Oh, man, I got another flat tire, stupid thing. Thank you, God, for AAA. I'm going to rejoice. What if we begin to change our mindset? Because the Bible tells us what? To be doers of the word and just not hear. I think so many times we hear the word, we know the word, but how often do we actually do what the word says? And Paul's telling us here, man, the key to have peace, peace, one of the keys is to learn to rejoice regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, regardless of what's going on at this present moment, find an opportunity to rejoice. You know, I was just talking about my son and the medical thing that happened last month. He was working. He calls and says, man, I got all this pain in my side. And I'm like, oh, it's going to pass. Don't do it. And Sean's like, we need to take him to the hospital. Tell him to meet us at the hospital. I'm like, 
no, it's going to pass. Just let it go. And he's hurting her. And she's like, just go to the hospital, Spencer. She meets him at the hospital. I was at work and end up being food poisoning or something. His white blood cell was super high, but it wasn't appendix, wasn't his appendicitis. So we got that bill. Oh, a couple of days later, the transmission went out in my, my vehicle. So we got that bill. Next thing you know, my son's car blew a piston. So I got that bill. And my wife's like, what's going on? What's happening in our lives? I go, you know what? We can let this get us down. She's like, but we don't have the money to pay these things. I said, okay, but God's given us the cars, gave us doctors to go through. He knows what we need. I'm not going to let it distract me. I don't know why it happened, but hey, how many families have a couple vehicles that they can rely on? One's in the shop. We got another one to drive. I'm not going to let it worry us. We just keep rejoicing. You keep moving forward. Things happen in life. I know that everybody's perspective is different. Some people handle stress a little differently. I totally get it. But what if we take our eyes off of our circumstances and we rejoice regardless of what's going on? I guarantee you God's peace will begin to minister to us. Amen? Number two is prayer. How do we get peace in our lives? We rejoice by prayer and by thanksgiving. We get God's peace by actually talking to God. We're going to spend time in prayer. But unfortunately, I know that this church is different, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of Christians that actually pray. We know we should. We talk about it. But how many Christians actually spend time in prayer? And like I said, there's congregations where that's a focus of the church and the people in the church pray. But Christianity Today did a study, and they said 81% or 82% of Christians read the Bible every day, but only 31% of Christians actually set a time a day to pray. And that could not be the norm. Every church, like I said, is different. There's churches that that's their focus, so they really push and encourage and have prayer meetings. But I want you to think about that. We say we're devoted to God. We say that he's our priority in our lives, but only 31% of Christians actually pray every day. But isn't it interesting that the average person spends two hours and 20 minutes on Instagram every day? And that's not a joke. Oh, I'm praying for the people on Instagram. That's why I'm looking at it. Oh, you saint, hallelujah. But I think about our lives. We have these struggles. We have these struggles. We go to our pastor. We talk. We have small group. We talk about the things we're going through and how hard it is and how difficult it is. And I'm not minimizing that. We've all been there. But are we really stopping to pray? Are we really taking time to say, I'm going to seek God's face and see what's going on? Maybe God wants to teach me something through this. Maybe he's trying to show me something. Maybe he's using this to refine me. Maybe you know, There's all these maybes that go on. But are we seeking God's face and praying? Because what we usually do is go... Pastor, man, I'm going through a really hard time. Will you pray for me? One day, I just want to say to people, if you prayed for yourself yet, I would never do that, but I might actually do that one of these days. And it sounds harsh, but it's the truth. You get emails, you get the connection cards, and that's what we do. We want to pray for people. But how many of us are actually seeking God? Paul says, you want to have the peace of God in your life, not just any peace, the, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, which means it doesn't make sense whatsoever. What do we need to do? We need to rejoice and we need to pray. And it's interesting because it also goes into the body of Christ, just not as an individual prayer, but Many churches, and I'm not trying to beat up on churches, they are trying to beat up on people, but I read a statistic not too long ago that the average church only prays a minute on Sunday morning service. So the average church is only praying one minute as a body of Christ. This is Jesus. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but in the congregation only prays one minute as a whole, as a congregation on Sunday morning. And then the people in the congregation, only 31% of them are actually praying during the week. You want to tell me why we have issues in the body of Christ? 
You want to tell me why we have problems that aren't being resolved? You want to tell me why we don't have peace? You want to tell me why there's no breakthrough? You want to tell me why their family and our society is a mess? If churches are only praying one minute every Sunday, which is once a week every Sunday, and only 31% of Christians are praying, that's pretty sad. And then we wonder why we're getting beat up by the enemy. We wonder why things aren't working out. We wonder why it doesn't seem like God's answering prayer. Well, God's not answering prayer because you haven't even talked to him in three years. You guys are quiet today. You're not going to have me back, are you? It's all right. And I'm going to touch a topic that's, and I want you to understand my heart on this. I have a degree in psychology. I have a master's in counseling. So I want you to understand my heart. Because we're not praying as individuals and because our churches aren't praying, we lack what comes with prayer. Power. Let's face it, the body of Christ lacks power. If we look around the world and we look at society and we look at churches, where's the miracles that Jesus performed when Jesus says you're going to do greater signs and wonders than this? Where's the healing flowing forth through people's body, the healing virtue that Jesus had and passed on? We see the disciples praying and people being, what, 3,000 out of Kenan day baptized, the dead being raised, shadows healing people. If we have access to the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived in the, in the disciples lives inside of us, Where's the power? If we go back to the book of Acts, which is the foundation for us to build upon, it's just the starting point. That's not what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to be go way beyond that because that's the foundation for us to build upon. And they spent time every day praying, fellowship, reading, and studying the word. That's what they did. Their lives revolved around what you're devoted to will determine the direction of your life. They were devoted to God. They were devoted to knowing God. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to disciples' teaching. And they were devoted to prayer. That's straight out of the book of Acts. And you see the power being manifested. And so we don't have this power in our churches. We're lacking this. Yes, there's glimpses of it. We see it here, there. There's certain evangelists that carry it. I totally understand. But I'm talking as a whole in the body of Christ. And because we lack this power, this is what we do. And this is where it might get offensive. We've allowed so much psychobabble into our pulpits that it's ridiculous. So much humanistic teaching coming from pulpits, so much psychobabble. We're not preaching the word of God. We have incredible communicators that are stroking our ears and make us feel good. And we're seeing no changes in people's lives. We're seeing no repentance from people. We're seeing no healings. We're not seeing very many salvations because we're not preaching the word of God. We've lost the power as the body of Christ. Not that it's very far off. It's there, available to us all the time. And I know I'm speaking general terms. I know I'm not speaking, like I said, it's a generalization. But if you think about it, and the messages, and I listen to a lot of teaching, and I listen to a lot of preachings, and there's so many times, like, man, that was, that was a great teaching. But when you really start breaking it down, there's no biblical basis whatsoever to what was just spoke. Or there's a scripture that's taken completely out of context to make for a great message. But what if we would get back to prayer in our churches? What if we would get back to praying? You know, when I grew up in a Pentecostal church, we had prayer meetings all night. I was going to say Vigilia, but it's all night prayer meeting on Fridays. You had Wednesday prayer mornings. You had men's breakfast prayer. You had prayer in an after church. You had prayer. Altars are open for prayer. Church used to revolve around prayer. And, you know, I've had this conversation with pastors. I have a lot of network of pastors. And they're like, well, things have changed. Time has changed. You know, people don't want to be in church for an hour and a half, two hours anymore. You know, 
an hour and 15 minutes is the ideal service time. People have so much going on. So, okay. So we take out one of the most important things there is, is prayer. So we're just going to get rid of it because we don't want to offend people. We don't have time to pray. I mean, that's the reality of it, right? And that's with our own lives. Well, we don't have time to pray. I don't have to. Well, it should be a priority in our lives. You make time for everything else. Why can't we make time for prayer? And if we would begin to rejoice in fellowship and say, God, you know what? doesn't matter circumstances. doesn't matter what's going on. But if we begin to rejoice and we begin to pray once again with an earnestness. And I don't say you have to pray like the Pharisees with some lofty prayer. Tell God what's going on in your life. Open up your heart. Begin to speak to him. Be vulnerable. Something we as Christians don't like to do, but be vulnerable. Before God, man, I'm struggling with this. This hurt. This person said this. This offended me. Man, I can't stand Johnny's boots. They're just really affecting me. You know, be honest. I had to go there because last time I had to give him a hard time too. It's this little inside joke that we have. I want, to, I want you to point attention to this. And this is truth. This is a study that was done. There's this new science, neurotheology and spiritual neuroscience. You guys might have read about some. You're probably familiar with it. They have found that praying 12 minutes a day over an eight-week period literally changes functions of the brain, that it shows up on brain scans. 12, hour, 12 minutes a day for eight weeks, it actually, when they scan the brain, will actually show the transformation taking place in the brain because of prayer. This is fact. I'm not making this stuff up. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, God's word renews our mind, but God's but prayer helps transform our mind. So we renew our mind through the reading of the word, but prayer, as we see in these examples from science, is telling us it literally begins to transform our mind. First Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. We need to start praying and being people of power once again. We have enough talk. We have enough stuff going on. We've got all these incredible servants. But where's the power? It's the power of God that changes life. It's the power of God that sets people free. It's the power of God that breaks the yoke and shackles off of people. We need the power of God in our lives. So let's look at the last one. Thanksgiving. Paul says, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In one's natural eyes, it would be very difficult to be sitting in a jail cell, probably going to be headed knowing his fate is about to happen. To give thanks, but Paul does. Remember Paul and Silas in the prison another time, they begin to rejoice, they begin to pray, they begin to fellowship, and we know what happened then. Once again, it's an attitude of the heart. We're not rejoicing because this is what we feel like right this second, but we're going to do it because we know this is what we're supposed to do. So we make that voluntary effort to say, you know what, I'm going to give thanks despite what's going on, despite the circumstance. I'm going to give thanks because you know what? God has done so much for me. God has done so much. Just the fact that we're saved, the fact that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to give his life and life eternal, that in and of itself is enough to continually give thanks. doesn't matter if we have a car. doesn't matter if we have a house. doesn't matter if things are going wrong at work. Just the fact that we're saved and we know we're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, worshiping him for eternity in heaven, that should be enough to give us a desire to give thanks. We need to have an attitude of gratitude. The Bible continually tells us to give thanks. We read the Psalms. It tells us to give thanks. Even Forbes magazine recently did an article on giving thanks, and they said that if we would give thanks on a regular basis, studies in Forbes magazine said that it literally changes your psychological well-being, your emotional well-being, your physical well-being, helps you sleep better at night, and gives you, you're more apt to have more friends. 
I want to want more friends. Forget the health, forget all that. You just want more friends, right? So we give thanks. It says in Psalm 9, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Once again, we're magnifying God. We're turning our attention off of ourselves. We're putting it back on God. Psalm 95, 2 and 3 says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is great, the great king above all gods. It's not about us. It's about him. And if we continue to look at ourselves, and we look at our circumstances and situations, we will be robbed of our peace. But when we look to God, and we extol God, and we give thanks to God, and we rejoice for what he's done, he changes our circumstance, he changes our disposition. It says if we rejoice, we pray, we give thanks. It says the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. It might not make sense, we won't understand, just as Paul says, but it's going to transcend all those things. And we're going to have the peace of God, God guarding our hearts and our minds. Now that is a word from God. That is a promise that we can stand on. And we know that all of his promises are yes and amen. If you guys would stand to your feet this morning. And I don't want to minimize the reality that people are struggling, lacking peace. I mean, it's a reality of many. And please understand, I'm not saying that we don't need counseling. We don't need coaching. I think they're very important things. I do a lot of counseling. I do a lot of coaching. And I actually look at both of those as a form of discipleship. I think they're needed. Um, I have people on my worship team that are, that are on medication because of depression. And I, what I've found is when they're not connected, I meet with our worship team every Wednesday to, or every Thursday to do devotion. And we minister to each other. When they start drifting out of that connection, they start, the old habits, the old mindset starts developing and they stay tight to the community. They're completely different people. Even though they might be using the same medication, but as they drift away or are too busy with work and stuff to really get connected, because Sundays after church, one of our, our leaders in our church has open house, a big pool and deck, so there'll be 30, 40 people from church. The leaders come over, swim in the afternoon. If they avoid those things, we can see the changes start happening in it. But as long as she stays connected to the body around that fellowship, completely different person. So I don't want to minimize the fact that there's times we need medication, we need counseling, we need coach. I'm 100% for it. But what if we pray? What if we get back to the root of it and say, okay, I believe that God wants to transform me. I might need these things for a particular time. There's something I'm going through. Maybe it's a true chemical imbalance that we need help. That's perfectly fine. But what if we add prayer to it? What if we add fellowship? What if we add rejoicing? And we allow God's word and we allow the Holy Spirit to begin to transform us. Jesus changes everything. We can sing about it. Jesus laid hands on people. They were completely set free from whatever they were dealing with. We've got to remember we can still stand on his word and his promises. And we don't need to beat ourselves up if we say, well, I need to go on medication for a while or I need counseling for a while. Don't ever look at it that way. It's all part of the healing process.